Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Uh, Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 1 and beginning at verse 1. And that's page 3, right at the beginning of the Church Bibles. So that's Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. And we're going to read all the way through to verse 25. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, 
And God saw that it was good. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning. Well, you know, it's as your vicar, I've been trying to work out uh, a little bit about all of you, and I realized this morning that you are the morning people. So good morning to you, and it's very nice to see you. My wife is the morning person, I confess. You should have seen me an hour ago. Bleary-eyed, but I'm here, praise God. Well, we're in, we're in wonderful scripture this morning. This is a precious place. And I have simply one goal. Simply one goal is that I hope as you walk out this morning, you are worshiping your God and your creator. Well, before we dig into this passage, would you join me for a short word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this word, the word of truth. Bless it to our souls, even as we attempt to unpack the grandest of mysteries, the creation of the world by your hand and by your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. It was very far away, and Diggory found it hard to decide from what direction it was coming. Sometimes it seemed to come from all directions at once. Sometimes he almost thought it was coming out of the earth beneath them. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune. But it was, beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful he could hardly bear it. Far away and down near the horizon, the sky began to turn gray. A light wind, very fresh, began to stir. All the time, the voice went on singing. The eastern sky changed from white to pink and from pink to gold. The voice rose and rose till all the air was shaking with it. And just as it swelled to the mightiest and most glorious sound it had yet produced, the sun arose. Diggory had never seen such a sun. You could imagine that it laughed for joy as it came up. And as its beams shot across the land, the travelers could see for the first time what sort of place they were in. The earth was of many colors. They were fresh, hot, and vivid. They made you feel excited until you saw the singer himself, and then you forgot everything else. It was a lion, Huge, shaggy, and bright it stood, facing the rising sun. Its mouth was wide open in song. Now, I'm sure some of you, if not all of you, recognized extracts from the magician's nephew. That's uh, C.S. Lewis's account of the creation of Narnia. And Lewis clearly was inspired by Genesis chapter 1. And Genesis chapter 1, uh, this account also has beauty and wonder to it. There's a song we get to hear as God speaks his creation into existence. The first two verses of Genesis last week brought us face to face with ultimate reality, the creator God, the personal creator God of heaven and earth. And this morning, I want us to focus in on the, on the first six days of creation. And next week, I'd like to focus particularly on the sixth day and the creation of humanity. But before we, we get into the, the details, if you like, of the different days, uh, please indulge me just for a, a few moments as I make a few initial comments. 
First, when we come to this chapter, we need to begin by asking, why did Moses write Genesis? And to answer this, we need to ask, what was on the mind of the Israelites? What was troubling them? And how does Genesis help them? Now, it may have been that the Israelites were getting the jitters about following Moses' lead and fleeing Egypt. Maybe, maybe they were scared, and, and so Moses wrote this account, this book of Genesis, in the first instance to remind them that they do not need to worry because it's not Moses that they are, are following, but the sovereign creator of the world. Maybe, maybe Genesis were written a little time later, after they've escaped Egypt. The Israelites are in the desert, and remember, they will not stop moaning, and there are mutterings in the camp about going back to the old way of life, of going back to Egypt. It's when Moses may have needed to remind them of the parallels between God bringing order out of chaos in creation and God bringing them out from the empty and chaotic life they lived before they knew him. This afternoon, if you get a chance, have a look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, and it makes that very same comparison, the parallel between redemption and creation. Now, it may be that Moses wrote Genesis and the Pentateuch many years later to the second generation of Israelites. It may have been that the, the courage of the Israelites was failing as they approached the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And Moses reminds them from their, uh, their ancestor, Abraham, reminds them that their ancestor, Abraham, had been called from a far-off land in Genesis chapter 11, verse 5, to go to Canaan, a promised land. Canaan was a promised land. It was the new garden of Eden. And it's when we remember that Moses was writing a history of God's providential calling and leading of the Israelites' ancestors to give the Israelites, the current generation of Israelites, the courage to face whatever the challenge was before them. It's when we realize this that we remember that what before, what's before us this morning is not a scientific textbook. Second, there were circling in the days of Moses numerous creation myths that he was, he was no doubt familiar with from his Egyptian education. I imagine the, the Israelites were as well. And you can read at one such account a numeral lish that describes the creation of the world from the dead body of a god. And I've just got a little extract for you. You can spend again this afternoon. You can read it. But let me just read this very quickly. Marduk captured Tiamat's followers and made them slaves. He then cut the corpse of Tiamat in half, thus creating the heaven from one half and the earth from the other half. He ordered the early supporters of Tiamat to take care of the world, and shortly thereafter, Marduk conceived another plan. He had Kingu killed and arranged to make man out of his blood. In the words of the story, man's lot is to be burdened with the toil of the gods. Quite honestly, exactly. It's an amusing read, and yet self-evidently a myth. The kind of myth that Moses almost certainly felt necessary to counter. Third, a word, if I may, about, about the numerous views that surround the question around the creation days. You know, it's worth saying that throughout church history, there have been a variety of views. And that, of course, will be reflected in the congregation this morning. Indeed, that the great Augustine said this, It is indeed an arduous and extremely difficult task for us to get through to what the writer meant with these six days however concentrated our attention and lively our minds. Now that, 
Just that comment alone should give us patience when we come to this question. You see, while we cannot answer all our questions with maybe the certainty we would like, we do need to note this. Is God telling us what actually happened? This is not some fictional story. It's not a a made-up version of what happened. This is not myth. C.S. Lewis, whose business was myth, that's what he taught in university, said that the biblical account has no marks of myth. It's a faithful representation of what happened, but not necessarily an exhaustive description. You see, it's not trying to be a photograph of what took place, but a painting, a poem. It's not a a scientific textbook, but it is a literary masterpiece. And let me just say one more preliminary point. Now look, there will be a range of views from those who hold to a a young earth view to those of you who think it was a a long period of time and gradual creation by God. What is important to hold is that it was a special act of God creating Adam and Eve. And Genesis 2, of course, will give us more detail on that. And that there was a literal garden and a literal fall. You see, As I've read the New Testament over the years, I don't think there's anything there that would definitively help us with the length of the days. But the New Testament repeatedly shows the importance of the real Adam, of a real Adam, and a real four. Okay, there's my preliminary thoughts and comments. And we could probably, quite honestly, spend the rest of the sermon looking at these issues. But I want us to get into the details of the days themselves. And broadly, the first three days show us God giving the world form, And the last three days, days four through six, show us God filling the world, bringing fullness to emptiness. So let's work our way through the days. And as we do so, I want you to notice on each day something of God's character. So on day one, we see there that creation is spoken into existence by God. It's under his power. Look at the first day in verses three through five. We read, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. God's sheer power is expressed in this first day. God says, and it comes into being. Now, you've no doubt heard the expression, creation by divine fiat. And that's not a description of a delightful French car. Rather, creation by divine fiat, that comes from the the Latin word fiat. And the first words in the Latin Vulgate of this section of this day are fiat lux. Let there be light. Or God said light into being. And this stresses the, the sheer power of God by divine fiat. By divine speaking, by eight simple commands, Moses says God spoke reality into being. It's a remarkable thought. By eight words, God spoke the entirety of the universe into existence. Derek Kidner, uh, the commentator, says this reality 
that God spoke the world into reality leaves no room for notions of a universe that is self-existent or a universe that is struggled for or a universe that is random or a universe that is a divine emanation. You see, what God commands, what God says, happens. The idea that, that words don't just describe something but perform something is familiar to us, isn't it, in lots of areas of our lives. Now, many of us, I imagine, have attended a wedding this summer, and yesterday, Phil and Katie got married. And at some point in the sermon, Rob, who was officiating, will have said these familiar words to them. I now pronounce you husband and wife. That pronouncement, obviously followed, uh, following their vows, was, was the moment that they became husband and wife. The words carry the power to do that. And God's words carry power. But a different order of power. He commands things that, oh, that don't even exist yet to exist. It's a different order of power, of course, because as the New Testament explains... The spoken word was revealed in the written word and then was fully communicated in the living word, Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the personification of God's word of power. He is the, the embodiment of sheer power and when Jesus spoke, things happened. The storm was stilled. The people got healed and sins were forgiven. Because as Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So this, this is day one. It's only day one yet. Oh, what a demonstration we have of the sheer power of God. So let's keep moving. Look then at verses 6 through 8. And the second day, and notice creation is named by God. It's under his authority. Verse 6. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky and there was evening. And there was morning, the second day. Again, what we've got here is God is, is building the structure, the theater, if you like, before it is filled with actors. Now, by now, you will have noticed an emerging pattern to the days. The, the pattern is typically it's an announcement, and God said, commandment, let there be, report, and it was so, naming, God called, Evaluation, and God saw that it was good, and a chronological framework. There was evening and morning on the said day. Now, there's not every element every day, but there is clearly a pattern and a structure. Naming what he makes. Now, we see here that God also names in day one and three. He names the day the night, the land, the sky, the sea. And then after that, he actually he stops naming, but he hands the duty over to people. So actually, it will be Adam, we know later, 
in, in Genesis chapter 2 that imaging God, he images God as he does, so he will be the one who names the animals. Now, what significance does naming carry? See, naming shows God's authority over something, him reigning over things. Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. As the one who made, named, and loves his creation. See, God is the only one who really knows what's best for it. Now, after all, he is the one who knows what everything was made for. Now, one commentator on, on this text said something this week that really caught my attention. Let me read it to you. He wrote this. Anything in creation can be directed either towards God or it can be directed away from God. It can either be used in line with its creational design or away from it. See, God sets in place in his creation boundaries. Here, the waters above and below are separated. He sets the boundaries later on for the sun, the moon, the stars, the birds, the fish. They are within their realms and they are according to their kinds. God limits the creation to, to fulfill the purpose he has for it. And everything in creation does that. Everything else carries out its purpose automatically. The sun rises and the sun falls. See, everything carries out what it was designed for, what it was designed to do, everything that is except for one thing, one creature, everything that is except for us, for people. And we'll see next week that, that we are actually the pinnacle of God's creation. And yet, whereas everything else submits to God's authority, we rebel against it. How we eat, how we diet, how we treat the environment, how we do our politics, how we negotiate a house price, how we use our smartphone, how we play Minecraft, some of our kids, how we approach our geography test. It's all under his authority. You know, these are, in and of themselves, good creation things. But they need to be directed in good God-honoring directions. Anything can be directed towards or away from God. Anything can be directed by God's authority or rebelled against his authority. And I wonder what that is for us this morning. See, what part of life are we keeping independent of God today? Maybe it's a, a hobby that is overtaking you and meaning you neglect other good things. A work project that you are overly dependent on for a sense of personal achievement. A relationship that is becoming unhealthily intense. A segment of your week that is so heavily protected, it's mine, we say, and I will do exactly what I want to do with it. Where is God shut out and excluded? Where is there off-limits placed in your life? where God is not allowed to interfere. What is God saying to us about those things? And notice then, the third day, creation is a good gift of God for us to appreciate but not worship. 
Now, in verses 9 through 13, we see the description of God's formation of the seas and the land. And we also see God is shown on this day to be ultimately responsible for the earth's productive powers. Notice verse 11. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds, fruit trees on earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. You see, it's, it's even at God's command that the earth produces vegetation, trees, and plants. And look at the variety. It's seed-bearing and fruit-bearing. There are various kinds. And at the end of the chapter, those seed-bearing plants and those fruit-bearing trees are given as food to, to mankind and to the animals and the birds. See, God gives us a world where there is ample provision. The food that we need, the water we need, the air that we need. It's all here. You see, creation is not just a, a convenient backdrop for us. It's perfectly suited for our needs. If we slip briefly into day four, uh, just for a moment there, the, the sun and the moon and the stars, they are created, verse 14, to serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. They are to give light on the earth. The heavenly bodies are placed as they are for our good. The constellations of the sky are God's purposeful arranging of the stars for us to na help navigate. You see, it's a world perfectly designed, not even just with us in mind, but for us. And God saw that it was good. And that's a phrase repeated daily. Creation is a good gift of God for us to thank God for. Now, Christian, we should not be anti-creation. We should not be so redemption-focused, a sort of super-spirituality that means that we detach from the world. See, we're not rescued by Christ to stop being creatures. We are rescued by Christ to be the creatures we should be. We're rescued for creation and ultimately for the new creation to come. And if this world is beautiful, how wonderful will the new creation be? John Stott said that we tend to have a better doctrine of redemption than of creation. And so we are more grateful for the blessings of grace than of nature and, 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 and of art. And I think he's right. You see, perhaps, perhaps we're, we're so concerned about making creation too much that we've made creation too little. And we've not received it with thankfulness, as Paul tells us that we should in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, John Stott, he quotes a poem by G.K. Chesterton, which I think is a very helpful challenge. Let me read this to us. You say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the play and the opera, and grace before the concert and the pantomime, and grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. I'm not sure about saying grace before the boxing, but you get the point. You see, as good evangelicals, I guess most of us say grace before our meals, but why not be constantly thankful, expressing thankful appreciation for everything we have? Why not grace before the movie, or the walk in the Peak District, or the game of tennis? 
See, it's not just food that we're given, but everything God created is good. God created what we have to be received with thanks. So we've seen the creation is spoken into existence by God. It's under his power. It's named by God. It's under his authority. It's a good gift of God for us to appreciate, but not worship. And lastly, it's a fruitful blessing of God for us to enjoy. And we see this on day four and five. On the fourth day, God makes the sun and the moon. On the fifth day, the sea. Now, in Moses' day, that the sun and the moon were worshipped by the Egyptians. And people also worship the sea. People throughout the ages, actually, have feared the awesome power of the sea. And seen in many cultures, you'll see that in many cultures, it's, it was worshipped as a god. And in Egypt, the Egyptians worshipped the sun as the creator of the universe and the giver of life. And you can understand why, can't you? The sun and the moon ordered the lives of everyone there is. You know, there was, there was no electricity. When the sun went down, that was it. Well, it was over for the day. Candle power was all you had. And Moses is making it clear that the sun and the moon and the sea are not gods to be worshipped. In fact, they are God's gift to us in order to help us order our lives. They are not powers over us. And I imagine, as the Israelites read Genesis, they are left to think, now, we've got nothing to fear from those gods of the Egyptians because our God created the sun and the moon and the sea. And day five is a, a rich, extravagant day of creating. The waters teem with living creatures. Birds fly across the sky. They are made according to their various kinds. And then verse 22, God blesses them. And says, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. God wants a world here filled with fish and birds. In today six, it will be filled up with animals and people too. See, God has not created an empty shell of a world, but a fruitful world, an abundant world, a delightful world. You see, he could have made a world with one species of animals. But we get dogs Guinea pigs, hamsters and cats, dogs that are dopey and loyal, cats that do exactly what they want when they want, hamsters that stuff their cheeks so full of food they're going to pop, guinea pigs that have babies that are tiny mini versions of themselves. We could have had just one type of food, but we get cinnamon rolls, curried pork and Yorkshire puddings. See, this world has been made by a God who delights in being more extravagant, more exuberant, more varied, more beautiful than he needed to be. Doesn't the world point us to a God full of joy? G.K. Chesterton said that God is childlike in his ongoing delight at making the same thing over and over. He doesn't tire of making a new, day, a new daisy, but he keeps saying, do it again. Do it again. But then he doesn't just make daisies. He makes daffodils and snowdrops and loads of other flowers. It's a world that sparkles and crackles with God's joy. And he gives us the joy of enjoying that with him. Of course, this is an after Genesis 3 world. 
This is an aching, creaking, under the curse world where there is also much that is broken, but it still has beauty, still has joy. And if this is a broken world, imagine what the new unbroken creation is going to be. If you think that a snorkel dive now in the Great Barrier Reef or standing on the edge of the Niagara Falls or seeing the northern lights in the Greenland, in Greenlands is stunning and impressive now, just imagine for a moment what the redeemed, cleaned, refreshed, restored creation will be. You know, my longing this morning as I rose and came down to church, my longing is that you would, you would leave happy, rejoicing, worshipping our God. Leave with a smile on your face because this is our Father's world. And he's given it to us for us to revel in and rejoice in and return thanks to him for it. Brothers and sisters, let's enjoy what God has given us with thankful hearts. Amen. Well, join me for a brief prayer. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that it is revealed. We thank you that it is revealed in the written word, but ultimately in the living word. So we thank you for Christ, the personification of sheer power, the word of God. So bless our souls and encourage us, we ask this day in your name. Amen.